All right, welcome to the British History Podcast Halloween special. I won't lie to you, I love Halloween. And many of you will be going trick-or-treating, visiting haunted houses, watching scary movies next week. But have you ever wondered where it all comes from? It's older than you might think. And it's probably pretty obvious that I'm quite excited to tell you about it. Now, as you might imagine, since I'm doing an episode on it, Halloween has a lot of British influence upon it. In fact, the name itself comes from Scotland, where All Saints' Eve, also known as All Hallows' Eve, was shortened in the 16th century to Halloween. And the name stuck. But as you probably gathered... Originally, the day was simply the day before All Saints' Day, also known as All Hallows or Hallowmas. And this might come as a shock to you, but All Saints' Day was the day in which early Christians commemorated all their saints. And it's still practiced today. But how did the day before All Saints' Day become such a big holiday? And what's with the costumes, candy, and jack-o'-lanterns? Well, the origin of the holiday is widely associated with Samhain, which we have a record of existing at least as early as the 1st century CE, and it almost certainly is much older than that. Samhain was an old Celtic holiday marking the end of summer and the beginning of winter. The calendar was split into two seasons rather than four. And in fact, etymologically, there's a good argument that that is exactly what Samhain means. Summer's end. Wales, Cornwall, Brittany, and other areas all have their own names for it. But for the purpose of this episode, we'll just refer to it as Samhain. Now, as I mentioned, Samhain marked the end of summer, but some also argue that it marked the end of the year as well. Though, like for much of this period, that last part is not without some controversy. But we'll come back to it as we discuss this topic. Now, generally, the counterpart to Samhain is seen as Beltane, which lands on the 30th of April. And that commemorates the beginning of summer. Though I should make clear that the dates associated with these holidays aren't necessarily accurate because the calendar from which we first see Samhain referenced doesn't explain how it relates to the Roman calendar, and our understanding of dates generally flows from that Roman calendar. So this calendar that we're referring to is pretty much off on its own. Consequently, there's much debate regarding exactly when these holy days took place originally. And there's also debate on when the new year truly began. And while some Celtic communities did treat Samhain as the beginning of the year, for example, the Irish conducted the ritual of Tara on Samhain, which opened up the new year, but it seems like not all communities followed suit, and some used Beltane or other days for the new year. But at the very least, we can be reasonably sure that it was a festival marking the end of summer, and that it would have landed at around the time that winter began. Now, we've spoken in prior podcasts about the importance of food and agriculture upon the people. And this was certainly deeply ingrained upon the Celtic people. In fact, many Celtic languages still carry hints of that agricultural history. Celtic languages are far better for describing colors and patterns, for example, which would be very useful if you're differentiating livestock or determining when a crop should be harvested. So even within the languages, we see that food was all important, and it follows that the beginning of summer and the end of summer would be major events for these people. In fact, the passing of summer was such a big deal that it was even the traditional end of the fighting season, which makes sense when you consider how quickly the weather can turn, and no one wants to paint themselves in woad only to get rained on. 
Now, of course, there were still raids. In fact, the most famous of all cattle raids, the Cattle Raid of Cooley, started on Samhain. And that makes sense, I suppose. Autumn would be a prime target for raids because the cattle were already rounded up at that point. But in general, warfare halted with the arrival of Samhain. And it wasn't just war. Hunting in some Celtic countries, such as Scotland, also halted following Samhain, only to start up again at Beltane. Samhain was a big deal. And it was also a big party. And that again has to do with food. Food at this point is plentiful thanks to the recent harvest. And now you have the communities settling down for winter. In fact, there are Celtic communities that had cultural traditions that the harvest had to take place prior to Samhain, or in some cases, no later than the day after Samhain. And some of this was tied up in the belief that the truce that they had with the other world regarding their crops and wild food came to an end on that date. So food, especially wild food, harvested after that date might no longer be safe due to the machinations of fairies and other magical creatures. And this myth continues to exist into living memory, actually. So due to the approaching deadline, thanks to fairies and other people messing with berries out there, there probably would have been a big harvesting effort leading up to Samhain, and thus probably plenty of fruit and veggies and grain on hand. And there weren't any refrigerators, so the fruit and veggies aren't going to keep that well. Grain can keep a little bit better, but there's going to be plenty of perishables on hand. And there was also probably an increased amount of meat available at around this period in time as well, because animals that might not be able to make it through the winter were probably slaughtered at around this point. In fact, pigs, which were breeding at this time of year, were the sacrificial animal associated with Samhain, at least in Ireland. So there's probably plenty of pork on hand as well. So this was a time of great abundance. Why wouldn't you want to gather as a community and celebrate? And if the year's end theory is correct, what better way to close out the end of the year? Even to this day, we gather together and celebrate as a community at the end of the year, often with food and alcohol in substantial quantities. And from what we can tell, the Celts probably did that as well. Though it probably did also have a darker tone than our modern New Year celebrations because they are also marking the point where life begins to go into decline and all of nature seems to conspire against the community. The days are shorter and dimmer. The nights are longer. It's cold. The trees go bare. Fields go barren. And people retreated into their communities and to their hearths, sometimes to plot for next year's war. This was the end of a cycle and a period of darkness. And it is that aspect, the end of one year and the beginning of another, that was probably an additional reason why Samhain was such a big deal. Borders and boundaries have long been important to Celtic civilizations. Do you remember that odd story that I told about how Scottish boys would be taken around the borders of their village and beaten at the border stones so they remembered where the boundaries were? You don't develop a custom like that unless there's a cultural emphasis on borders and a big one. Well, it seems like the Celts were also quite concerned about the edges of other things as well. For example, the boundaries between this world and the other world, which also probably accounted for their fascination with water, and also the boundaries between this year and the next. According to the Celtic tradition, the line between one year and the next year also carries with it a thinning of the veil between this world and the other world. The barrier between the two worlds can be breached at times like these, and supernatural creatures can cross over. And just as terrifying, 
humans can be tricked into crossing into the other realm as well. And this was no laughing matter. In Ireland, people wouldn't go out unless they absolutely had to, and definitely steered clear of graveyards. If you heard footsteps behind you, it very well could be the spirits of the dead. People would hollow out and carve faces into turnips and place them in their windows in order to ward off evil spirits, lit by an ember from a sacred fire, which should sound rather familiar to you. In Brittany, there's folklore about how on this night the dead would return to visit their descendants and expect to be entertained. You don't think the games, stories, and stuff just sprang out of thin air, did you? When you're bobbing for apples, you better be entertaining about it because your ancestors might be watching and expect a laugh. In Wales, food would be left outside, which doesn't sound too far from providing candy when you think about it. Doors were left unbolted, a hearth was prepared, all in anticipation of a visit from dead ancestors. And later in its history, if you sat outside a church all night, a spirit would tell you the names of all the people who would die in the coming year, and you would just have to hope that you didn't hear your own name. So this was a time for celebration, due to the abundance, but it also carried with it some level of fear and trepidation. And as interesting as these traditions are, it really is from Scotland that we get many of our modern customs. The Scots dealt with the blurring between the two worlds primarily by confusing the spirits. The village would do this by wearing masks and disguising themselves. Boys would dress as girls, girls would dress as boys... The rich would dress as the poor and vice versa. Costumes would be worn. It was a total breakdown of social norms. And in a certain way, it makes sense. If the borders are broken down, why not disorient the spirits by having the entire population spread a bit of chaos and disorder? And of course, this was the perfect cover to engage in a little bit of payback. So pranks became rather commonplace, especially against the miserly and disliked members of the community. Farm equipment and livestock were relocated, houses were pelted with veggies, there were all sorts of tricks to be played. You can see how this situation would quickly lead to bribes to avoid the spirits, or the people impersonating spirits, from causing mischief upon your property, can't you? And maybe that became the origin of trick-or-treating. You either provide a treat, or something's going to go missing. Now, there were other ways it could have started. For example, there probably were other treats, if we're going to use that term, that were offered to spirits in the form of sacrifices, such as those pigs we chatted about earlier. And when better to offer a sacrifice to the other world than during a time when the boundary was weakened? So that makes sense in a certain light. There are also theories that it arose from the belief that fairies would dress as beggars and ask for food, and then punish those who refused. And fairies don't mess around when it comes to punishing mortals, so you probably should just give them some food. Some people also point to the Christian tradition of souling, which was when there was an exchange of food to the poor in exchange for them praying for the dead on All Souls Day. But that's a more tenuous connection, and at most, it was probably an attempt to rebrand the old pagan tradition to something a little bit more palatable to the church's sensibilities. After all, all of this was quite pagan, so that's Samhain. All in all, it's rather Halloween-y, right? Kind of odd for a holiday named after the eve of All Saints Day. I mean, even the ubiquitous image of modern Halloween is a carved pumpkin. Well, before Halloween came to America, the native home of pumpkins, 
It was originally carved turnips. And all of it is connected to old Celtic culture. And the name itself, jack-o'-lantern, has an odd story associated with it that almost sounds like it could have originally involved Jack bargaining with fairies. Here, I'll tell you the story, and then you can decide. So there's this fellow named Jack. Some call him Stingy Jack. Others have called him Drunk Jack. He has many nicknames. So Jack was something of a cad and a scoundrel. And eventually the devil heard of this human who had a silver tongue and grew envious of the stories of Jack's deceptions. So he decided to see for himself if this human was all he was cracked up to be. And he came upon Jack as he was staggering home, after having a few too many, as was his custom. With growing dread, Jack came to realize that this man blocking his path was the devil. Now this was an event that would sober up even the most seasoned of drinkers. And so Jack took a deep breath, accepting the gravity of the situation. He knew he was going to hell. He wasn't under any illusions of who he was. In fact, in his pocket right then, he had a turnip that he'd stolen out of his neighbor's garden. Something he was quite fond of doing, actually. And so he resolved himself and just asked for a final request before he was taken to hell. He said he would give his soul to the devil freely if he would just be first given a final drink. The devil couldn't find any reason to refuse, and the request itself was a bit amusing. So he accompanied Jack to a pub where the devil bought round after round for this entertaining mortal. And at the end of it, to the devil's surprise, Jack asked him to cover the tab. Well, this was somewhat unheard of, but the devil did agree to give him a final drink, and a deal was a deal. But there was a problem. The devil didn't have any money on him. Why would he? He's the devil. So after much discussion of what to do, Jack convinced the devil to transform himself into a silver coin in order to pay the bartender. And the devil agreed. Poof. He was a coin. And Jack immediately snatched the coin up and put it in his pocket, where he kept a cross. The devil was trapped. And Jack wouldn't let him come out until he agreed to spare his soul for ten years. Knowing this might be the only way he could ever free himself from this human's pocket, the devil agreed. And he waited. Ten years later, Jack was once again walking down the road when the devil appeared to him and told him that it was his time. Jack nodded and then looked to his left and saw a beautiful apple tree. Could I have just one apple before I leave this world forever? He asked. And the devil who was apparently uncommonly charitable when it came to this devious old man, agreed. But as the devil climbed up the tree to get the apple, Jack surrounded the trunk of the tree with crosses, trapping the devil in the branches. And this time, Jack knew he had the devil cornered. All he had to do was leave, and the devil would be trapped up there forever. So Jack demanded that the devil release his soul, and that he never be taken to hell, or else he'd just leave the devil in his prison. Reluctantly, the devil agreed. But all that drinking and swindling began to take its toll on Jack, and eventually, he died. Thanks to his bargain with the devil, he knew that he'd never go to hell. So he strode up to the gates of heaven and sought entrance. But Jack had not lived a good life. He lived one of the worst imaginable, one filled with sin and deceit, not to mention stolen turnips and God knows what else. 
and so St. Peter simply could not allow him to pass through. He was a soul without a home, and so, sadly, he went to hell and begged to be let in. However, the devil already made a bargain. He couldn't let Jack in, even if he wanted to. But where can I go? Jack asked the devil. Back where you came from. Jack's shoulders sagged, and he started walking off into the darkness between heaven and hell. And at this moment, the devil took pity on this strange, devious mortal. He might be a lost soul, but he need not wander blind into the abyss. So he tossed him an ember from the fire. Jack took a turnip from his pocket, carved it out, and placed the ember inside. And he used his newly made lantern to light his way as he drifted off into the darkness, never to rest, becoming Jack of the Lantern. Now, having heard that story, imagine the same story, but replace cross with cold iron. This would be a fairly typical fairy story, wouldn't it? In fact, the devil doesn't even seem like himself at all in this story. It would make much more sense if it was somebody like Puck messing around with him. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? But anyway, that's where we get jack-o'-lanterns. But Halloween isn't all Celtic. For example, there's that odd thing with bobbing for apples. Sure, it might just be to entertain the dead, but where did the apples come from? Well, some have pointed to the festival celebrating the goddess Pomona as a possible origin. And you do see apples appear in Celtic celebrations following the Roman occupation, such as the use of peeling an apple for divination. And divination was something that would have been common at Samhain due to the breakdown of the veil. Though having the apples resting in water does have a certain element of druidism to it, doesn't it? Especially given that water seems to have been a portal between one world and another. And that barrier, like I keep on saying, was very weak on Samhain. It's an interesting thought. Now, what else do we associate with Halloween? Well, there's witches, of course. But while there have been wise women in communities since human history began, the idea of evil witches with the cackling and all that kind of stuff is actually a Christian invention. So there you go. We have at least one bit of this holiday that is Christian, other than the name. Sort of. Oh, and black cats. Black cats are tied to medieval Christian times. Cats were sort of the scapegoats of the time, and actually they took a lot of heat for the Black Plague, which is ironic considering that was really the rats that were spreading the fleas that spread the disease. And we sure could have used a few cats to keep the rat population down right about then. So there you go. Most of this is not very Christian. So how did we get here? How did this Celtic holiday become a pre-All Saints Day festival, sort of? Well, you can probably trace it to Pope Gregory I in 601 CE. And fun fact here, that's the same year that the first Anglo-Saxon king was baptized. Anyway, so Pope Gregory had a pretty ingenious idea. Instead of walking in and cutting down the trees that everyone was worshipping, I'm looking at you, Suetonius, instead, why not consecrate the tree and thus change it from a pagan tradition to a Christian one? It was brilliant. You can just take the pagan ideas on festivals, rebrand them for various holy dates, and the Catholic Church was awash in holy dates, and let everyone continue doing what they've been doing for ages, just now under the auspices of the Church. Eight years later, in 609, 
All Saints Day was introduced by Pope Boniface IV, but it was celebrated on May 13th. We aren't exactly sure of when the Brits began to celebrate it on November 1st, but there are references to communities in Britain celebrating it on November 1st as early as the start of the 8th century, which was about a century before it was officially moved to that date. But it was moved, and it was moved pretty early for the Brits. And the obvious question is, why did they move All Saints Day? Well, that's a subject of debate, like just about everything else. Some point to continental reasons, but others point to Samhain. And concerns over Samhain make quite a bit of sense, actually. The trouble with Samhain is that you really can't just absorb it like Pope Gregory suggested. I mean, here we have a festival that is filled with spirits and is tied to one of the few religions that Rome made a concerted effort to wipe out. And it focuses on the blurring of the line between this world and the next, a world that the early Christians would associate with hell. So how do you say, hey, <laughs> this is a Christian holiday? Sure, hell is coming over here and causing some trouble, but this is totally just Christian. It had paganism stamped all over it. So the argument is that instead of trying to consecrate the festival, the church just tried to utterly replace it with a feast dedicated to all the saints. But it really didn't work out too well. The old traditions found a way to hold on. And then another holy day was added by the church in the 10th century, All Souls Day. And this was dedicated to deceased members of families and the communities. It's not that much of a stretch to imagine the church trying to deal with pagan traditions by providing communities with a sanctioned Christian way to redirect their energies, or at least rebrand the attention paid to the dead as a Christian holiday, the All Souls Day. But in general, when looking at the holiday, it seems like the old festival found a way to survive, and by the 16th century, it had already acquired its modern title, Halloween. All Hallows Eve. So I hope you have a fantastic Halloween. And if you'd like to, head on over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com slash forum and share your costumes with us. I'm going to set up a thread on the general discussion area specifically for listener costumes, so it should be a lot of fun. And I'll even throw up one of my old costumes where I was dressed up as a pirate. Well, have fun and be safe out there. Thanks for listening. He did the monster match. The monster match. It was a graveyard smash. He did the match. It caught on in a flash. He did the match. He did the monster match. Wow. From my laboratory.